What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Father, we, we thank you that you have not left us um, alone. You give us your spirit uh, and you give us your word to be able to live out our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now particularly that by your spirit and through your word, you would speak to us that what we do now this time that we spend now would, would equip us for our lives as Christians. Please, would you give us humble hearts? Would you give us attentive minds? Would you give us open hearts to hear you in your word this morning? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you uh, very much for inviting me back uh, uh, for t- after 24 uh, years to come and uh, be with you this morning and to be preaching actually on a passage of the Bible that I first preached on um, when I was a curate here, I discovered as I um, was uh, preparing. It's good to be back and it's good to be back in the punchy uh, New Testament letter of James this morning. And as you have no doubt been discovering if you've been here over the last few weeks, James is, is writing to Christians who used to be part of his congregation church leader in Jerusalem, but who have been now scattered and find themselves all over the, uh, the Mediterranean because of persecution against the Christian faith. And he's writing to them because he can't stand up in a pulpit and preach to them. He's writing to them to show them the difference between genuine faith as a Christian and fake faith. And here in the second half of uh, chapter two, he really turns up the temperature on that and the urgency of what he's wanting to get across to them as he contrasts saving faith 
that is of great spiritual value, eternal spiritual value, and dead faith that is no use at all. Now, you, you can normally tell when something is uh, dead. I could tell when that squirrel was um, dead. You don't need to be too perceptive. Normally, there are a few telltale signs. Uh, the lack of movement, uh, the lack of breathing, uh, the lack of a pulse, and in time, the smell. Normally, it is pretty obvious when something is dead. But when that something is faith, it can be a lot more hidden. It might take a bit more pointing out. And that is why James calls out that kind of faith three times in our reading today. Have a look back with me at those three times. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then right at the end, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And he explains what he means by dead or useless, as he says in verse 20. In verse 14, he says, faith without works cannot save you. And by works, James doesn't mean actually what we might instinctively think he means. He doesn't mean things that you do to get you right with God. He, he simply means the things that you do because you are right with God, the outworking of your faith. So verse 24, faith without works, faith that isn't outworked in your life will mean you're not justified by God. And therefore, having a faith like that is no good at all. In fact, we would say it's no faith at all. Now, it's a familiar theme, as you've been discovering, and in many ways, it's James's overriding concern in the whole letter for the people that he's writing to. Christian profession without Christian lifestyle. Claiming to be Christians without then seeing the need to, to live as Christians. And of course, when you put it like that, that, that is not a problem that has, that has gone away since James wrote this letter. It's not a problem that is beyond our experience as Christians. And James's response to the problem is, is characteristically punchy. Any claim to be a Christian, to have faith, must and can only be substantiated by actions, by living it out. If you can't see anything, there's nothing there. If you can't see anything on the outside, it means there's nothing going on on the inside. You know the old um, proverb, uh, there's no smoke without fire? Uh, well, here he's saying, if there's no smoke, no visible evidence of Christian faith, there's no fire. There's no living spiritual life. It's as simple as that. Now, we need to be really clear, James is addressing people who profess Christian faith. If you look at the beginning of chapter 2, how he addresses them there, my brothers show no partiality as you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's clear from how he begins our passage this morning, verse 15, sorry, 14, what good is it, my brothers, my brothers in Christ? 
But despite that, he's not convinced they've made this connection between what you believe and then how you live. And and he's raising this issue with them because it really matters. Have a look at, at verse 14 with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 15, if uh, a brother who, or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Imagine, he says, um, a person who claims to have faith in Christ. They know Christ died for them. They believe that's true. But that's as far as it goes. They have no works. There's no evidence of the Christian faith in their life. And those two questions in in verse 14, they take us right to the heart uh, of the problem. What good, what good is faith like that? What use is it to anyone? Can such faith save them? Those are crunch questions And to help us answer those questions and work out what kind of faith we've got ourselves, James gives us here four illustrations, four, if you like, scenarios. And the first two he gives us are, they're examples of dead, useless faith. And these are things that he obviously wants us to to avoid. But then he follows it with two illustrations of, of really living faith, saving faith, faith seen in actions. And that is what he's wanting us to emulate in our lives as Christians. So here's the first one, uh, faith that is, I've called this faith that is all mouth and no action. Let's look back at verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He uses a really, really, really obvious example of failing to put your faith into practice. It couldn't get more obvious than that, could it? But do you notice this this example is a situation inside the church. So this is a brother or a sister who is poorly clothed with not enough to eat. It's not someone who we would walk past on the street. And the response of a Christian like this to such a basic and obvious need, someone who's all mouth but no faith, no, no actions, is uh, off you go now as I go back home for my Sunday roast. Try not to be too hungry without any food. Uh, do keep warm without enough clothes. And it's warm and it's friendly and it's no doubt well-meant. But the blind insensitivity of it is, is shocking. It's all mouth, no actions. And James returns to his opening question to, to make his point from this little example. End of verse 16, what good is that? What use is, is faith like that? It's obviously no good to the person in need. They don't get any clothes or food out of faith like that. But what you might miss, unless James states it bluntly, is that having faith like that is no use at all to the person who has it. Verse 17. 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith by itself, that's all mouth and no action, is not half a faith, a lukewarm faith. It is a dead faith, and it is just as useful. Now, I, I don't know if you've uh, seen uh, or read this little book. It's one of my favorites. Uh, it's called a, a Complete Uses of a Dead Cat. Now, I, re- I realize I'm taking a bit of a risk here, uh, especially after the squirrel story. Um, and if you are a cat lover, I, I hope you will forgive, forgive this. But this book is full of suggestions, amusing, I think, suggestions as to what you might could do with a dead cat. Uh, so, for instance, you could uh, use it as a hearth rug if you wanted to, uh, or uh, as a toast rack. Um, there we go. Or oven gloves. We just sort of caught a glimpse of uh, oven gloves. And uh, my favorite one, uh, toilet brush. There we go. Now, the reason a book like that is funny, as long as you haven't lost a much-loved pet just recently is because, let's be frank about it, a dead cat is no use for anything. It turns on that. And dead faith is just the same, James is saying. It is no use for anything. But it's not a joke. Has it ever occurred to you, James is saying, if your faith is like that, all mouth but but no action, you can talk the talk and you can look the part when you need to, but you don't walk the walk. In fact, you're not even able to respond to the most basic and the most obvious need that's right under your nose. Then he's saying, your faith is dead. Your faith is useless. And more to the point, your faith won't save you. Faith that is all mouth, no action. Second example he gives us here of dead faith is... Faith that is totally orthodox, that is, it's totally in line with Bible teaching, but again, there's no action. Verse 18, have a look with me. Someone will say, as they hear what James is saying, and they don't like it, you have faith and I have work. So he's managing now an objection, an interruption to what he's wanting to say, because he knows it's strong stuff. And this imaginary interruption is from someone who feels that, quite frankly, there is no problem separating faith and deeds, belief and action. Poor old James, uh, they say. Typical of James, typical of you. You're getting all worked up again and about nothing. You're overstating your case again, James. You do your thing and I'll do my thing. And we can all just calm down a little bit and get along. You have faith, I have works. Or perhaps if it's an interruption from one of the Christians that he's writing to, you have works, James, and keep banging on about that. But I have faith. It all sounds very reasonable, perhaps even contemporary. And actually, it's how many Christians try to live today. I wonder which side of the the divide would you put yourself on? Are you on the side that says, um, do you know what, theology, 
That all just seems a bit complicated, a bit divisive, a bit dry. I'm more of a kind of practical, loving kind of a person. Um, I'm the sort of Christian who likes just to get involved with people. I'm a works Christian. Roll up my sleeves, get involved. Or, Or maybe you're on the other side that says, I love theology. I love reading books. I love, I'm sound as a pound. Let me show you my Christian library. I am totally orthodox in my theology. After all, it's what you believe that makes you a Christian. I'm a faith Christian. And you may be thinking, well, what is wrong with that? I mean, why not allow a bit of freedom for personal preference when it comes to how we understand ourselves as a Christian? But James won't allow, won't allow that at all. Look at uh, end of verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He, he issues an impossible challenge to this imaginary uh, interrupter to expose this kind of thinking about being a Christian. Prove to me, he says, prove to me the reality of this so-called faith of yours that has got no works, Show me your faith. You can't, can you? There's nothing you can point to. There's no evidence at all. But if you were to ask me the same question, I can actually prove the genuineness of my faith because I can, I can show you my faith in action. I can point to works. The, the two in my life, they come together. And it's a challenge that that thoroughly exposes someone who is happy to separate faith and works. But just to bury this this misunderstanding out of sight, James rams the point home in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You can hear maybe the the sarcasm creeping into his tone. You people, he says, who, who concentrate on being doctrinally pure, totally orthodox, but don't live it out? You, you believe that God is one, one God, three persons. It's a basic tenet of the Christian faith. Well done. At least you got that bit right. And he's not knocking that. He's not disputing it. He's just saying that knowing that and believing that about God is not enough to save you. Even the demons, the occupants of hell, believe that God is one, But they shudder with fear because they know that believing that won't save them. Their knowledge of who God is is quite correct. It's totally orthodox. But it cannot save them because they don't act on it. I I don't know if you've ever heard of the famous tightrope walker in the 19th century, a man called uh, Charles Blondin, Frenchman. On the 30th of June, 1859, he set up his tightrope right the way across Niagara Falls. That's a long way. A huge crowd gathered to watch him perform his daring act, and backwards and forwards he went all day, and the crowd growing bigger and bigger, more and more excited at this totally fearless man. Not only did he walk across uh, the tightrope, he cycled across. Uh, He walked with his hands and his feet manacled. Not quite sure how he managed that. He even stopped in the middle to eat a meal with the table and chairs on the tightrope. And eventually he he got to the climax of his act and he produced a wheelbarrow 
You can see. And he said to the crowd, I am the great Blondin. You have seen me today walk across the Niagara Falls many times. And now I will do the hardest crossing of all. I will cross with a wheelbarrow. Do you think I can do it? Yes, they shouted. You are the great Blondin. Do you think I could do it with a person in the wheelbarrow? He asked. And there was a deathly hush. (laughs) Except for one poor guy who just hadn't seen this coming. Yes, of course, he said. You are the great Blondin. Well, sir, said Blondin, would you like to step into the wheelbarrow? And the man declined the offer. He claimed to believe in the great Blondin. But when it came to it, he refused to put that faith into action. And when it comes to to our belief in God as Christians, James says, actually, many of us, in a far less dramatic way, do exactly the same thing. We're clear about what we believe. We're maybe even enthusiastic about what we believe. We really do believe that God is one. There is only one true God. And our doctrine of God, in fact, all of our doctrine, is entirely orthodox and correct. But it never quite makes the impact on our lives that we know it should. Our lives never quite match up to our belief. And though that troubles us from time to time, over time, we come to feel Well, that's just the way things are, isn't it? That's just the way Christians are, aren't they? And James is saying that is a precarious position to slip into, having a faith that is totally orthodox but not lived out. And so James is is framing his warning here with shocking bluntness. This is way more shocking than I would ever dare to be as a visiting speaker coming to speak here on a Sunday morning. What he's saying is this, if demons can believe that God is one and stay in hell, then it is perfectly possible for you to believe the same thing and go to hell. Dead faith, faith without actions, it won't save you, says James. Two examples of dead faith. Two examples he's really keen for us to avoid. And now he gives us To encourage us, two examples of of living faith. One is much, much shorter than the other, but they're both making the same point. Genuine faith, saving faith, is proven by its works. And James introduces these two examples. They're both drawn from the Old Testament, so no no dead cats here. Um, But actually, both of them are equally controversial uh, in their own way. Now, he's still... As we pick it uh, up again, he's still interacting with this interrupter, the the person who's objecting to his position. Verse 20, if you look. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Literally, you hollow man. You hollow man. Do you want to be shown, you hollow man, that faith apart from works is useless? But actually, what we'll see is what he gives us is The opposite of that, two examples of faith with works being useful, not two examples of faith without works being useful. I think he feels he's already done enough of that, um, so he's going to go positive uh, for a change. So here's the first one. Here's the first example. This is Abraham from verses 21 
to 24. And really, this is a great example of someone who put their faith into practice. So here's a great example, perhaps the best example in the Bible of someone with saving faith. Abraham has got impeccable faith credentials. He is theologically orthodox through and through. Here's someone who believed that there is one God. But for him, crucially, it didn't end there. Verse 21, have a look with me. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Now I have to say of all the many, many, many examples James could have used of Abraham putting his faith into practice, his faith being made complete or proved by what he did, he decides to choose the most shocking, and some would argue the, the most questionable of all, Abraham offering his son Isaac on an altar as a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice even more problematically that God had asked for. Now, <laughs> I don't know why James went for that one. Maybe he thought his reader's attention was beginning to wander and he, and he wanted to shock them back into listening, um, a bit like talking about dead cats, just to get people's attention. And sometimes the, the examples or the illustrations that preachers or writers use, they are troubling, and they are questioning, and you, you end up getting totally distracted from the point that they're making. I hope that didn't happen with the cats. I hope it doesn't happen here with Abraham and, and the sacrifice of, of Isaac, because the point that James is trying to make about Abraham is clear, and it hangs actually just on two crucial words in verse 22, if you look. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Abraham didn't just believe God and leave it at that. Theoretical faith. He did something about it. He put his faith into practice, even in this strange and confusing request from God. James's point? It is faith like that, end of verse 23, that gets you called God's friend, that gets you justified and counted to him as righteous by him. And that, of course, friends, is that is the only faith worth having, a faith that gets you called God's friend. Not his enemy, his friend. The big question for us this morning is, is that what our faith is like? Have we got faith like Abraham? Faith that works together in our lives? Or is our faith in a bubble, on its own, faith alone? It's theoretical but it's, it's not worked out into, into our lives. Because faith like that does not get you called God's friends. It's not the sort of faith that gets you justified or counted righteous to him by him. And that's how James rams this point home, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone, not by faith on its own in a bubble. 
Now, incidentally, this, this, it's this verse, that verse, verse 24 that I just read out, that is sometimes used out of context to try and show that James and the Apostle Paul are contradicting each other when it comes to the place of faith and works in our lives. But I hope you can see as we've been following what James is actually saying, and as we look at that in context, James and Paul are on the same page, and you'll certainly never hear the Apostle Paul saying, just have faith, don't worry about living it out in your life. And I guess if we're honest, that is something we struggle with, integrating how we live day to day, moment by moment, with what we believe about Jesus Christ. Now, let's be clear here. God is not going to ask you to sacrifice your children as a way of working out your faith. Though if you have very young children and they're having a bad day, that might be a sacrifice you're willing to make. God won't ask us to do that. But he does ask us to do lots of other things as the outworking of our faith as Christians. He asks us to be kind and compassionate, like James's example at the start. He asks us to be prayerful and so dependent on him. He asks us to be generous to others with what he has given us. He asks us to be hospitable. He asks us to be those who are willing to step out of our comfort zone and share our faith with others. God asks us to do lots of things as the outworking of what we believe. He asks and he watches. He's watching for those works, watching to see if our faith can be seen in what we do. And we all struggle with that, with the follow-through. We all struggle to close the gap of inconsistency in our lives. And the, the truth is there are times in our lives as Christians when that gap widens considerably. When we really feel our faith is hollow, that we are that hollow man. And that what we have is no more than an empty profession. It's gone stale. We're going through the motions. And I've been there as a Christian. And I know that is a miserable place to be as a Christian. There is no joy in that. And what James is wanting to tell us is, ultimately, that is a dangerous position to be as a Christian. And what he'd say to anyone in that position is, you must resolve that. Don't let that run and run and run. Stop that division between faith and action. Don't let things slide any further. Take action today. Get right with God. Come back to God. Get clear on this really, really important issue by putting what you know and believe into action. That's Abraham, what Abraham did. And look what happened to him. He got called God's friend. Do you want to be called God's friend? Second example that, that James gives us, it's another example of saving faith. It's making exactly the same point, so we can be really quick about this. Uh, Rahab. Rahab. Now, Rahab is about as different <clears throat> from Abraham as, you can, as possible. She's not a Jew. Uh, she's a woman. And she is a prostitute. So again, James is going for shock tactics here. He didn't pick any old person. He picked a prostitute. So we've gone from child sacrifice to prostitution. So he clearly doesn't want anyone to stop listening to what he's saying. He wants to grab your attention, especially as we get towards the end of the sermon. He doesn't want you to fall asleep. 
He gets right to the point, verse 25. And in the same way as Abraham, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another word? We don't need to get into the whole story of Rahab and the spies, uh, but just a flavor to get the weight of James's point. You may remember back in the Old Testament, Joshua, uh, before they got into the land, he sent two spies to Jericho, the walls of Jericho, all that, and they were spotted by the authorities. And so they hide uh, in a brothel run by Rahab. It's the, um, the James Bond rule of espionage. When you're in a tight corner, hide uh, in a brothel. Um, and Rahab is questioned about these two enemy spies, whom she's hidden on her roof, if you remember. And she, she pretends she doesn't know what they're talking about. I've never heard of them. And anyway, um, they've left the city, these people I've never heard of. It is an extraordinary lie. You can read it. It's in Joshua chapter 2. Not now, a bit later. Extraordinary lie to tell. But what's more extraordinary is why she tells it. Why does this woman betray her own people and protect two enemy spies and risks her life in the process? And actually, the spies are pretty interested as to why she's doing that. And so they ask her. And she tells them. She says this. uh, You can find in Joshua chapter 2. I know that the Lord has given this land to you, that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That was all she knew. That's the sum total of her faith. It's tiny compared to what Abraham knew. But actually, that was all she needed to know. And she put that into action. Verse 25, she gave these messengers' um, lodgings, and she helped them escape. Real action from real faith, and in her case, risky action at great personal cost. Those two things often, often come together for us as Christians. Risky action at great personal cost. And that's that's how James ends verse 26. Have a look. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead. And the spirit there is is a little s. It's it's like a life force reference, not the Holy Spirit. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And we're back to where we began. Faith without works is not half a faith. It's not a lukewarm faith. It's dead. A body without the spirit is a corpse. And faith without works is the same. Spiritual corpse. A living, breathing, spiritual corpse. It's no good to you if you have a faith like that. It's no good to anyone around you if you have a faith like that. But most importantly, it's no good to God. And it might well be that as a result of looking together now at James's four examples this morning, you're now convinced that you're not a Christian after all. You thought you were, but you're not. Well, that is clarity. I would urge you to speak to someone if you've come to that conclusion. It may be that after hearing this, you you actually, the opposite, you're convinced you are a Christian. You can show someone your faith worked out. Either of those are pretty clear. But it might be that now you're just not sure where you stand. And can I say that if that is, is you, that actually doubt and uncertainty is the exact opposite of what James is trying to grow in us in chapter 2 here. He wants to grow faith, not doubt. 
and uncertainty, not uncertainty, and anxiety. So can I say, if you are uncertain, can I suggest the best way of making sure that your faith, the faith that you have is real faith, saving faith, is, is really very simple? Put it into practice at the first opportunity. This morning, over a cup of coffee, put it into practice. On your way home, put it into practice. As soon as you get home, over lunch, put it into practice. As soon as you begin to live out your faith, you will find you get less and less troubled and anxious about whether it is real or not, about whether it will save you or not. It's only when we live out our faith that we get the assurance, the certainty that we often lack as Christians. But can I also say that if that is you, but you're not willing to do that, you're going to stick with what you've got. You're not willing to move on from that. You're determined to hang on to this division between what you believe about God and how you live your life. Can I urge you, please stop play acting as a Christian? You might be able to fool yourself and you might even be able to fool others here. But when it comes to God, you certainly won't be able to fool him. Stop being hollow. Come back to him, to a wholehearted faith in him. Be a Christian of substance. A Christian who is good in what they do and faithful in what they believe. Well, why don't we take a moment quiet to reflect on that in our own lives and then I'll lead us uh, in a prayer. Father God, this author, James, he does not um, mince his words. He does not pull his punches. And Father, where those have landed this morning in our own hearts, we pray that, that we would not be crushed, that any wounds that we have, have uh, received would be wounds that cut away uh, fake faith, uh, wounds that in time and in turn bring healing and wholehearted faith. Please would you humble us. Please would your spirit where, show us where we need to put our faith into practice most urgently and most personally for us. Please would, you, would he do that work in us for our good, for our eternal uh, salvation and for Christ's glory we pray. Amen.